A series of very 21st century robberies have been taking place in Iceland. The thieves haven't been breaking into banks and stuffing holdalls full of cash or gold bars. No, they've been making off with computer servers that are used to mine Bitcoin. So far, 600 have been taken, worth about 2 million US dollars. Let's put that in perspective. 600 ounces of gold is worth $780,000. So how did we get to a point where a computer server that's used to mine a currency built on nothing more than mathematical calculations is worth more than gold? You're listening to The Anthill, a podcast from The Conversation with me, Annabelle Bly. This episode is all about Bitcoin. Whether it will bring us money 2.0, who's trying to take advantage of the legal grey areas of cryptocurrencies, and because using computers and servers like those in Iceland to mine digital currencies is such an energy-intensive business, we're also investigating whether it'll ever be possible to build a greener kind of computer. Bitcoin has come a long way since it was the plaything of early fans experimenting on the fringes of the internet. Are there question marks about Bitcoin's future? Bitcoin soars past $13,000 for the first time. The largest cryptocurrency by market value was selling for less than $1,000 at the start of the year. This morning we were watching the price of Bitcoin. Take a look at what's going on. Down now more than 20% just in the last week. The digital currency coming under pressure earlier this week after the SEC said exchanges that offered trading of digital assets would have to register. Launched in 2009, Bitcoin's value had risen to about 1,200 US dollars at the start of March 2017. A spike in demand saw things skyrocket, and by mid-December, one Bitcoin was worth more than $19,000. It's now back to around $10,000. So will Bitcoin be the currency of the future? My name is Bernardo Batislaso and I'm professor of business history at Bangor University in Wales. Bernardo knows a lot about the history and evolution of money, and he's sceptical about the world switching to Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency anytime soon. He points to some of the fundamental pillars of what makes money, money. Money is something that primarily seen to help make transactions. So it has to have at least four qualities or characteristics, which is durability, portability, divisibility, and uniformity. So that means that, you know, it can be easy to carry, it can be easy to be divided for small transactions, it has to be the same across, you know, not changing. Money hasn't always looked the same. Throughout history, people haven't always used the kind of notes and coins issued by central governments today. What we see throughout history is that money appears more or less at the same time in ancient Greece, India and China. And money becomes more important and widespread until the end of the Roman Empire, where there is a period that money kind of disappeared. There is no new money created in in England, for example, for about 200 years. And then with the Industrial Revolution, things come back again. And eventually we see something that is called the gold standard, where everybody matches their uh, domestic currency to a fixed parity with gold. And that basically disappears in different shapes in the early 1970s with the end of something that was called the Bretton Woods Accord. And today money is basically based on how much reserves central banks 
have. So there's no natural law that says we must use the national currencies, the dollars, pounds, euros, that are the norm today. Money allows us to trade the goods and services that we need. To do this, it needs to be portable, easily divisible, and a good store of value and durable. When judging Bitcoin by these values, Bernardo points to its shortcomings. Bitcoin as money has two main problems. One of them is that it has proven not to be a good store of value. It has fluctuated with other currencies dramatically since its inception. The second reason is that you cannot pay your taxes with Bitcoin. And really, in practical terms, money is whatever you need to settle your whatever you owe. And the first one in the line is always the government. So whatever you can pay your taxes with, that will, in effect, be money. Okay, so say you don't want to pay your taxes anyway. There are also problems with the practicalities of paying for goods and services that you do want with Bitcoin. Well, the thing is with cryptocurrencies are on the margins of, of the payment system. Although in some countries like in China, they have WeChat, for example, integrated Bitcoin to its platform. In most other countries, you have to go through an exchange or Basically, you, you have to build a bridge between the existing payment system and the cryptocurrency environment. So unless these bridges are breaking down and you have the cryptocurrency embedded in the payment system, you will continue to have these kind of problems. Then there's the limited number of transactions that cryptocurrencies can handle. Bernardo points to Ethereum, another cryptocurrency, which according to him is better built for transactions than Bitcoin. The size of the transactions that they can handle is still very small compared to what uh, a payment system today would need. Ethereum can manage some 200 transactions per second. For comparison, Visa handles thousands of transactions per second. But the way that Bitcoin is designed means it can only manage a handful of transactions per second. So it seems that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies won't replace money as a medium of everyday exchange anytime soon. Another way of seeing money, however, is simply as an asset or store of value. To find out more about Bitcoin's strength as an asset, I spoke to Larissa Yarovaya, director of the Center for Financial Research at Anglia Ruskin University. She's recently carried out some research that looks at how Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are affected by US policy announcements. So overall, we analyzed 58 different uh, digital assets, including Bitcoin. Uh, we constructed a database of U.S. policy changes between the 26th April 2013 and the 30th June 2017. For example, uh, our announcement database consists of eight interest rate changes and quantitative easing announcement made by the U.S. Federal Market Open Committee. In some respects, Larissa and her colleagues found that Bitcoin acted like a currency, especially when compared to other crypto assets. So we found that a Bitcoin particularly sensitive to the U.S. monetary policy announcement. So if this uh, positive announcement, the price will go up. If it's negative announcement, yeah, the price will go down. But it didn't act entirely like a currency. 
and Bitcoin's exposure to these shocks was relatively isolated. So during the crisis period, the crisis shocks will not be that easy transmitted to the cryptocurrency markets because they are decentralized and they are relatively isolated from other markets and even global volatility index. So if we want to place Bitcoin uh, among other financial assets, we can say that it can take a position somewhere in between of gold and United States dollars. So uh, it's not a pure functioning as a uh, medium of exchange, but not a pure store of value as a goal. Yeah, so it's something in between. Larissa says that the way cryptocurrency assets differ from other conventional assets mean they are a good way to diversify your portfolio. So we can say that it's still relatively isolated from other financial assets like equities, like gold and other commodities. So from investment perspective, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies can offer substantial diversification opportunities. And even inclusion, a small proportion of uh, Bitcoin can provide uh, a good extra return for the investment portfolios. You just need to watch out for bubbles. Cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is highly speculative assets. And as any speculative assets, the prices will be prone to speculative bubbles. And even though recently Bitcoin experienced a very impressive growth, and those who was able to invest in Bitcoin and use the Bitcoin and other digital currency. In the beginning yeah, of this bubble stage, they now created a quite a good wealth and made a fortune based on these growths. But for those investors who are currently entered in the market, they should not forget that the price sooner or later should reach the equilibrium, the fundamental value of Bitcoin. It's hard to say what Bitcoin's fundamental value is, says Larissa. This is part of the reason why its price remains incredibly volatile. Certainly, naysayers have prematurely dismissed Bitcoin a number of times since it was first created in 2009. And it has experienced its fair share of shocks. But some of Bitcoin's core following bought into it not for its potential asset value, but for its libertarian ideals. Bitcoin is built on a piece of technology called the blockchain, which enables it to circumvent government oversight. Every transaction that is ever made using Bitcoin gets registered on a public list called the blockchain. This acts as a digital ledger. Every time blockchain gets exchanged, the new transaction is added to the blockchain and authenticated by a network of computers. The techniques use cryptography. This makes it impossible to fake a new addition to the blockchain, it also makes every transaction totally transparent. Anyone can see the Bitcoin addresses involved, though they don't know who they belong to, allowing people to trade anonymously. Ironically, it's this traceability factor that appeals to governments. And it's why some are thinking about getting in on the act of issuing their own cryptocurrencies. Here's Bernardo again. One of the main reasons why governments have, in the last five to ten years, promoted greater use of digital payments in different forms is precisely because they can have greater traceability and in their mind reduces the possibility of untraceable transactions, which are primarily around the black economy. 
Tracking everything via the blockchain would enable governments to have even greater control over who is paying for what and where. This would be a bitter irony for Bitcoin's libertarian advocates. I'm going to hand over now to the conversation's tech editor, Kelly Fivash. She's taking a closer look at what different governments are saying and doing about cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin has caught the eye of casual observers hoping to make a fast buck out of the world's best-known cryptocurrency. But a number of banks in the US and the UK have now banned customers from buying digital currency with their credit cards. The recent move from the likes of Virgin Money, JP Morgan and Lloyds Banking Group comes as the volatility of Bitcoin has failed to put off consumers who have been effectively gambling with their credit cards in the hope of achieving a hefty payout. But Bitcoin's recent fall in value, after a mega surge at the tail end of last year, has left banks fretting that customers will be saddled with large debts. It's clear that the stateless nature of Bitcoin, Ethereum and so on, has allowed the market to blossom. But regulators around the world are closing in on cryptocurrencies. Just recently, the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, signalled that it was time to regulate elements of what he described as a crypto asset ecosystem to combat illicit activities, promote market integrity and protect the safety and soundness of the UK's financial system. Cryptocurrencies are poor stores of value. Over the past five years, the daily standard deviation of Bitcoin was 10 times that of sterling. Consider if you'd taken out a £1,000 student loan in Bitcoin last December to pay your sterling living costs for the next year. You'd be short about £500 right now. If you'd done the same last September, you'd be ahead by 2000 It's quite a lottery. And Bitcoin is one of the more stable cryptocurrencies. In a damning assessment, he said, And far from being strengths, the fixed supply rules of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin are serious deficiencies that would impart a deflationary bias on the economy. If those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, recreating a virtual global gold standard would be a criminal act of monetary amnesia. But could the game be up if the market is heavily regulated by the very institutions proponents of cryptocurrency have been trying to dislodge? I think the way it'll get regulated is actually quite interesting because the way you regulate it is you make it acceptable and the way you make it acceptable is if governments decide to accept it for tax. You know, ultimately, that's the ultimate test. If the government will take it from you, then it's something worthwhile. If that is the case, then that's going to come at the price, as it were, of the libertarian fantasies that underpin many of these cryptocurrencies being discarded. And it will have to be just another asset. That's Brian Lucy, who is Professor of International Finance and Commodities at Trinity College in Dublin. He has researched why it is that Bitcoin carries all the obvious signs of a bubble. It, it seems to me that there's a very strong link between this radical post-capitalist libertarian and Randian fantasy world that everybody can you know, be an independent actor. It's a huge long way from there to having a regulated and accepted market. I, I think the regulation of it would kill it, but it will probably not thrive without greater regulation. Rand believe that capitalism is a social system based on the recognition of individual rights, including property rights, in which all property is privately owned. Advocates of her philosophy are known as objectivists. It's a view that has gained traction in recent years among libertarians, 
in part because some of Rand's views on money seems to chime well with the cryptocurrency system. Rand once said, money has to be some material commodity which is imperishable, rare, homogenous, easily stored, not subject to wide fluctuations of value and always in demand among those you trade with. Rand's point was to use gold as money as a token of wealth actually produced. It's hard to say whether she would back cryptocurrencies today, but some of her key criteria can be applied to Bitcoin. It falls apart quite heavily when you look at its volatility, however, and Brian is quick to dismiss the status of cryptocurrencies. No way is Bitcoin gold 2.0. He does, however, believe that states and individuals have been exploiting cryptocurrencies precisely due to the fact that they are unregulated. Many people, he says, use cryptocurrencies purely in a speculative way or for potentially illegal means. There are some countries that are talking about using cryptocurrencies, but even, for example, Venezuela's currency is really not a cryptocurrency per se. It's more a strange kind of an attempt to make more liquid its uh, its petroleum assets and to try and escape some of the, the holes that it's in with regard to inflation and, and, and sanctions. Venezuela's economy is in shambles, even though it's a nation blessed with vast oil reserves. The government has a plan to pull the country out of a deepening crisis and it involves cryptocurrency. Venezuela launched a new... Venezuela entered the cryptocurrencies market in February with a controversial pre-sale of its own crypto, the Petro, just as its own currency, the Bolivar, collapsed in value. Um, so we haven't yet seen a country decide to peg itself to a cryptocurrency, and nor, nor do I think any country would be so foolish as to so do. Iwa Salami, a senior lecturer at the Royal Dock School of Business and Law at the University of East London, says that the cross-border nature of cryptocurrencies is problematic because it can aid criminal activities such as money laundering and the online purchase of drugs and fake IDs. But for now, the regulatory approach to clamping down on cryptocurrencies remains patchy. She believes such efforts need to be coordinated to address the stateless nature of cryptocurrencies. I mean, we have different types of countries who take different, you know, approaches. So on the one hand, we've got China, for example, who have outrightly banned cryptocurrency trading in any form of cryptocurrency, the usage of cryptocurrency for, for transacting. And then on the other hand, you've got a country like Switzerland that is really very forthcoming and welcoming of cryptocurrency trading, cryptocurrency transactions, the issuing of new coins. And, and then you've got, of course, countries that, you know, are sort of in between. They see the benefits and are quite also aware of the uh, potential problems. Iwa says the current state of regulation across the globe means that authorities are playing a game of whack-a-mole, particularly on the dark web, where there is plenty of evidence to suggest that cryptocurrencies are routinely used to make shadowy transactions. As one illegal online marketplace such as the notorious Silk Road, where drugs were sold, is closed down, another, such as Alphabay, pops up. That's quite difficult to, to regulate because once you have parties that are interested in transacting in cryptocurrencies and interested in receiving cryptocurrencies as a form of, of payment in these forums, then it becomes quite difficult for regulators since they, these parties are actually transacting behind codes, if you like, and it's very difficult to actually track them down. There are also growing concerns highlighted by the international anti-money laundering body, the Financial Actions Task Force, that cryptocurrencies are being used to finance Islamic State. Iwa refers to the Islamic State as ISIL. So open source, uh, source research identified an, an ISIL propaganda website 
which was used to solicit uh, donations via Bitcoin. Okay, and what uh, basically what happened there was that uh, when research into the Bitcoin addresses were was done, uh, five donations to Bitcoin addresses were identified, and the beneficiaries uh, in in turn made twelve payments uh, for technical services, including web hosting. Uh, donations to the web hosting site that cited the ISO propaganda website, and it was it's a Bitcoin technology obviously prevented the identification of the owners of the um, Bitcoin addresses. So we have there growing evidence that Bitcoin can also be used to facilitate the financing of terrorism. Some critics have claimed that the use of Bitcoin to finance terrorism has been sensationalized. But Iwa believes that strong evidence of this activity underscores the importance of regulation. She adds that such action should no longer be considered in a vacuum because it's not a problem specific to just a handful of jurisdictions. It's an issue that crosses borders. Strong regulatory mechanisms and international security regimes are already in place to tackle terrorism. But when it comes to cryptocurrencies being used for nefarious means, the trowel too often goes cold because, she argues, law enforcement agencies aren't properly equipped to deal with the problem. There's a great need for international cooperation. Brian agrees that the current lack of regulation around cryptocurrencies is having a negative effect on ordinary people who are exposed to the exploitation of Bitcoin and other digital currencies. For some, it goes way beyond a poor punt on Bitcoin that stings the monthly credit card bill. Last year, Puerto Rico was devastated by Hurricane Maria. Months on, and the US territory remains in a deep power crisis as it struggles to rebuild its infrastructure. Meanwhile, a group of mostly young men who have fattened their wallets thanks to early investments in blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies have moved to Puerto Rico to build a supposed digital currency paradise, dubbed Sol. But is this really a crypto utopia? No, absolutely not. It's not that people in Puerto Rico are you know, too poor, too stupid to understand cryptocurrencies. They just don't have power. They don't have sewerage. They don't, they've been abandoned by the United States and, and the international community because, you know, they're seen as being, and they are in relative terms, wealthy. And you've, what you have is you have disaster capitalism run amok with people thinking they can set up a utopia there outside the reach of, you know, many uh, of the strictures of, of modern life and uh, basically buy their way into uh, to a place because the government needs money desperately. Don't forget... Puerto Rico, you know, it's so bad that the bankruptcy that Puerto Rico was undergoing has been suspended. And, you know, when, when, when the vulture funds who deal with bankruptcy are suspending the bankruptcy proceedings, you know things are bad. The crypto utopia that's being talked about is really a utopia of the wealthy. It's this deep libertarian view that there is no state. And what they would try to do is try to buy their way out of an existing state. So I I don't see it as as being a crypto-utopia. Disaster capitalism, where powerful people use a natural or economic crisis to reshape society into one which entrenches a hyper-capitalistic view, is of particular concern to Brian. He believes it's the perfect storm for cryptocurrency entrepreneurs to exploit, and it underscores the need for better regulation. The underlying technologies that underlie some of these cryptocurrencies are, are really interesting. But right now, it's not even the Wild West. You know, it's just completely unregulated. And the disaster capitalism that we've seen, the desire by very wealthy, shadowy forces to escape regulation and oversight of the state 
is driving a lot of the uh, the more interesting proposals. Mm. While Brian doesn't think that the Puerto Rico model will be repeated across the globe, his comments are nonetheless sobering. I don't think this is going to get off the ground in any serious way, but it just shows you know, where these people and, and these forces will go. Uh, they will go to where the pickings are easiest and where the state is weakest. Brian Lucy from Trinity College Dublin there, ending that story by Kelly Fiveash. If you're on the hunt for more podcasts to listen to, check out The Conversation's long read podcast, In Depth Out Loud. Every fortnight, we bring you a story written by an academic expert. In our latest episode, Michael Parker reads the story by historian Tony Royal from the Open University of the heartbreaking tale of the flying mathematicians of World War I. Here's a taster. Keith Lucas was killed instantly when his BE-2 biplane collided with that of a colleague over Salisbury Plain on October 5, 1916. As a captain in the Royal Flying Corps, Lucas would have known that his death was a very real risk of the work he was doing in support of Britain's war effort. But Lucas wasn't a career pilot. He was a physiologist. That's In-Depth Out Loud. Check it out on theconversation.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Definitely check it out. It's a great listen. Now back to Bitcoin. As the hype about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies has grown, so too has the clamour about how bad it is for the environment. Remember how every Bitcoin transaction has to be verified. This is done by solving complicated mathematical problems. And the quickest way to do this is by using a ton of computer power to run through the possible answers in a process known as mining. Once the correct answer is found, the transaction gets verified and the person or entity that did this proof of work is rewarded Bitcoin in return. What's more, because the cryptocurrency was designed to have a limit of 21 million Bitcoin, the more that it gets mined, the more difficult the process becomes. This uses up a whole lot of computing power and energy in the process. Will de Freitas went on a search to find out whether there might be a more sustainable way to make cryptocurrencies in the future by building greener computers. It's hard to know exactly how much energy all these Bitcoin miners are using to power their computers, but it's a lot. One recent analysis said worldwide Bitcoin mining was consuming as much electricity as Nigeria. Or just look at Iceland. In 2018, the country is likely to use more electricity to mine bitcoins than to power all of its homes. Now, Iceland may be unusual as it has perfect conditions for bitcoin mining. It has super-fast internet, it has cheap and renewable energy, almost all from hydro and geothermal power, and it has cool weather which helps prevent large computer servers from overheating. But still, more electricity used to mine bitcoins than to power every home in the country. Clearly something is up. It's not just bitcoin. Computers these days need more and more energy for all sorts of tasks, from powering your laptop or mobile phone, through to huge industrial supercomputers or tiny processors found in home appliances. This demand for computer power will only increase as capturing and analysing data becomes ever more common and the Internet of Things embeds little computers in inane objects like toothbrushes or mugs. 
So here's the question. Will we have enough power to run all these computers? Could we invent some sort of low-energy computer that makes such worries a thing of the past? And what might that mean for Bitcoin? I spoke to two academics to find out. My name is Dr. Oscar Céspedes, and I am an associate professor in condensed matter physics in the University of Leeds. I asked Oscar why he's working on low-energy computing. What's the problem he wants to solve? Well, the, the, the problem is that we need more and more computing for everyday needs uh, as time passes. So we, we depend more and more on the internet. We depend more and more on computers for, for anything from banking to medical science to transport communications, looking for a job. So unless we, we look for ways of reducing the amount of energy we use in each of these things, uh, we will reach a point where it will not be viable. We will not have enough energy or the amount of energy we will need will be too damaging to the environment or, or to uh, other sources. Part of the problem is that computers generate lots of heat. Right. So one, one of the issues is, and anybody who has had a laptop on, on their knees for a while will know, is that a good deal of the amount of energy that we use when, when we are doing computing or surfing the internet or whatever is wasted. It just goes into heat. And that's because our electronic devices uh, and the way we process information doesn't use energy as efficiently as we could with different technologies, perhaps. So uh, some, some of that power goes into, uh, say, run a video. But some of that power also just goes into heating up your computer and therefore is useless. It's also why, for example, nowadays Intel is as focused on, on developing processors that consume less power as they might be on fabricating processors that are more powerful or more uh, with more computing capability. I asked Oscar how we might be able to develop low-energy computers. A lot of the focus is inevitably on heat. Heat can be converted back into electricity through what is known as the Seebeck effect, although, of course, it's not, it's not 100% efficient. Another option is to reduce the amount of heat we, we waste. The reason we, we waste heat is because any electron that is moving around is going to, to generate, quotation marks, heat. It's going to generate friction. It's going to dissipate heat. So when you have a voltage and you have a current, that leads to a power dissipated via heat. If you can compute or you can use a technology that carries information but doesn't carry electronic charge, it doesn't carry electricity, then you don't have heat waste. Electricity involves millions of tiny electrons buzzing around, Oscar explained. So imagine that half of those electrons that are moving around have what is known as a spin up, and half of them will be spin down. Okay, so at the moment you don't care about whether they are spin up or spin down, you only care that they are moving, they are carrying the current. But if now you think of a system where the electrons with a spin up are moving, say, left to right, and the electrons with a spin down are moving right to left, then the electrons in total are not moving, but the spins are moving. So you can carry information without carrying charge. 
And without the charge, of course, you don't waste extra energy as heat. A health alternative that is, is farther down in the future will be to look into things like quantum computing, where information can be stored in a different way through photons, so light, or perhaps in rather than looking at how electrons are moving, uh, looking at how full systems with a lot of information in each of them are coupled with each other. But that is much farther down the future. Oscar is optimistic that some of these technologies will be developed in future. To learn a bit more about some of the cutting-edge research into low-carbon computing, I spoke to Heine Linke, a professor of nanophysics at Lund University in Sweden. Heine has been developing what he calls a biocomputer. This computer works by encoding certain mathematical problems in a graphical way, a bit like a labyrinth. Imagine a, 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 literally a labyrinth like, like hedges in the park with many different possible pathways you can walk through the labyrinth to get from one entrance to an exit. But it's defined in such a way that it represents a specific mathematical problem and you find the solution to the problem, for example, by taking a million preschool children, let them run through that labyrinth in the park and check where they are coming out, assuming that they explored all the different possible paths in the labyrinth on, on the way. Now, we are not doing it with kids. Um, we are doing it with molecular motors, which are proteins that come from biology that can literally move around. Apparently, these proteins from biology really are the sorts of things that we might find in our own bodies. We use two different systems. One comes from skeletal muscle, so it's called the actin-myosin system, which is what powers your muscle motion. So if you lift something with your arm, exactly that. You have billions of them to work in concert to make that happen. We use a second system called kinesin microtubules, which is in axons and nerve cells as a transport system. So you find that in many of them in the brain, for example. Let's go back to the labyrinth. So we literally make one of these labyrinths, but very, very small using nanotechnology. So we use a technique called electron beam lithography to make a, a labyrinth with channels that are 100 nanometers or so in, in breadth, and the whole thing can be a few hundred square micrometers or so. And then we let protein motors, so molecular motors from biology, literally walk through the labyrinth, explore all the different paths at the same time. And depending on where they come out, for example, we know that, yes, there was a solution to this problem or no, there wasn't. With the big advantage that they can check many possible pathways at the same time, so we don't have to wait as long. But how does this help us use less energy? These molecular motors are evolved in biology to be extremely energy efficient. So they literally use chemical energy like chemical molecule coming originally from your food in the body and convert that into mechanical work to walk around. And they simply do this extremely efficiently, so more efficiently than a car engine, for example. So they're very close to the thermodynamic ideal efficiency limit. And that makes them very efficient for these computations. So we can do one computational step with a factor of 100 or maybe even more or less than a transistor would do. 
Now, Heiner is keen to point out that these biocomputers are only likely to be useful in certain very specific applications. A labyrinth full of tiny proteins is unlikely to replace your laptop anytime soon. But I asked him if a biocomputer could one day be used to mine cryptocurrencies. So unfortunately, I, I, I'm not informed enough to really answer that question. Um, I suspect yes, because I believe that this is exactly what's happened when one mines bitcoins. One chews through many different possible solutions to find one of them. Then when you have it, it's fairly easy to verify that it's a correct one. So this is one of the hallmarks of these combinatorial problems. It's hard to find a solution, but if you have it, it's not difficult to check it. I think that's exactly what cryptocurrency relies on, but I'm not enough of an expert on it. I mean, the value of cryptocurrency appears to rely on the fact that it is difficult to mine. If you make it easier to mine, then that somehow goes away. So you probably would make it harder to mine it then. And I'm not sure you would save anything. So it looks like there are lots of exciting developments still to come as scientists get ever closer to those ultimate physical limits of processing power. But with regards to Bitcoin, it seems Heiner is right. As a group of academics wrote for the conversation late last year, Bitcoin's out-of-control energy use may be the entire point. If mining became incredibly cheap and easy, the value of the coins would diminish. And even the fanciest of futuristic low-carbon supercomputers won't stop Bitcoin being bad for the environment. Will Defratis there, the Conversations Environment Editor. Now, we couldn't bring you a podcast on Bitcoin without asking an expert the big question. After everything you've heard, is it still worth the gamble to invest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies today? Here's Brian Lucy from Trinity College Dublin. That's the not just even the 64,000, but the $64 million <laughs> question, isn't it? Um, would I invest in Bitcoin? No but I'm extremely, um, extremely risk averse. Would I suggest to anybody that they invest in Bitcoin? Sure, you know, if you're interested in Bitcoin, why not? But like any investment, you really only should invest in, uh, in, in something if you can afford to lose pretty much everything that, that you've put in. Now that's nearly all for this episode of The Ant Hill. But before we go, we wanted to spread the word about a couple of other podcasts that we're fans of here. First, check out the University of Liverpool podcast, showcasing academic research from the university. Their latest episode, featuring Dr. Dan Hawcutt, is all about medicine and how do we know the right dose of medicine to give our children. If investigative journalism is your thing, check out The Tip-Off, a show that delves into the stories behind investigative journalism in the UK. It's well worth listening back to host Maeve McClanahan's two-part interview with BuzzFeed's Heidi Blake, who led an investigation into a series of mysterious deaths on British soil. The episodes 15 and 16 of the Tip-Off podcast are called Web of Death, Parts 1 and 2. And last but not least, here's a message from our colleagues over at The Conversation Australia about one of their latest podcasts. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. If you like The Anthill, check out Trust Me, I'm an Expert a monthly podcast from The Conversation Australia, where we ask the academic experts to take us behind the headlines and tell us what the research really says about the issues making news. 
Our latest episode is about pain and what the science says about pain relief. If you if you had your leg cut off, and you know, no one should try this, obviously, but <laughs> if you had your leg cut off and you threw it in a big industrial food blender and mashed it up completely, that leg can't hurt. But even cooler is is the person who had that leg five years later can have brutal, severe leg pain without having the leg. That's on the latest episode of Trust Me, I'm an Expert. You can find it on theconversation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this episode of The Anthill. A big thanks, as ever, to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Anthill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly, with editing help from Abby Wichels. If you enjoyed the show, please share the love with your friends and even give us a review online. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.